You're listening to the Tuna Town Talks Fishing Podcast with Captain Paul Miller. Hello everyone, and thanks for listening. I'm a full-time charter captain based out of Ennis, Louisiana, and over the years I've seen some of the most incredible things, and some of my friends have told me some of the most unbelievable stories, so much to where I decided I would like to start a podcast. And now a word from our title sponsor, Blue Wave Boats. Blue Wave has been the number one selling bay boat along the Gulf Coast for many years now. And with over 50 square miles of marsh located out of Venice, Louisiana, it is essential that I choose the right boat to put my clients on fish. For the last four to five years, I've been using a 24-foot bay boat powered with a single 300 Suzuki, and it's been an amazing boat. However, over the years, I've also learned that I like to target a lot of different species that are near shore, so having a bigger boat with more power could help with that, which is why I've decided to move to a 26 Pier Bay powered with twin 200 Suzukis, and this has been the perfect size boat for being able to target multiple different species, especially because the boat has over four live wheels in it, which allows me to use multiple different baits to target multiple different species. With the flush mounted seating, I'm also able to maintain ample fishability, all while still providing a comfortable ride for my clients. With the step toll technology, I'm able to be more fuel efficient at higher speeds, which is also a huge advantage when making long runs through the marsh. If you would like to purchase a Blue Wave boat, head on over to bluewaveboats.com where you can find your local dealer. Welcome to an, another episode of Tuna Town Talks. I'm, I'm here today with doing an episode that is long past due, um, but today I have on my dad, um, Captain Mark Miller. How's it going, Dad? Hey, it's going. <laughs> well, guys, I've wanted to do this one for a long time. Um, we actually did one, like... The first one. Yeah, the first one. We just never really posted. It was my first podcast I ever did, and like, I don't know, I just thought that maybe... Once I got better at it, it would, it would it would do more justice. So yeah, here we are. We're we're doing it again. And um, thanks for deciding to come on, Dad. I really sure. appreciate this. Is mm-hmm. you're, you're how I got my passion for fishing. So <laughs> well, I'm real proud of where you took it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. So Dad, tell us, um, tell all the listeners, like, um, like I guess start like where you were born and how you started fishing. I mean, I've I've heard the okay. story a gazillion times, but I love to hear it. So. <laughs> Well, actually, I was I was born a Yankee. I was born in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio, but moved out of there at three months old. So I really don't know anything about that. But I I lived in uh, I lived in California until um, I was twelve years old, and my dad had lost his job with uh, McDonnell Douglas and hunted for a job for about a year, and finally got one with uh, Litton Shipbuilding and in Culver City, California, and the stipulation was after about a year, if everything worked out, he moved to Mississippi. So that's what happened. So 12 years old, we uh, piled in the car and came to Mississippi, stopping at the Grand Canyon on the way. And <laughs> <laughs> so you guys, so he, he, you guys only lived in California for a year, or was it more than that? Uh, 12 years. 12 years. Yeah, oh, so you were real young yeah, in Ohio, mm-hmm. and then 12 years in. Mm-hmm. California and you grew up pier fishing right I grew, I grew up pier fishing uh I can remember most distinctly well my uncle Bob really started me fishing my my dad didn't fish too much my sailed uncle, right yeah my dad my dad was a sailor kind of like my son Luke <laughs> <laughs> guess where that's where he gets it but uh yeah I used to uh I remember my last year there 
when I was 12 in Culver City, and we, I fished, uh, I was about a mile or two down the road from Venice Pier, which a lot of people know what that pier is, and I would ride my bike down there every, quite a bit to fish, and I remember there's an old man that used to fish there a lot, and uh, I remember one day, it was just my last day really going fishing on the pier, and I said, well, you're not going to see me anymore, I'm moving to some place, moving to uh, Mississippi, and he goes, oh really, where, where, and I said, I can't think of the name. It starts with a P. And he said, Pascagoula. And I said, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and so, anyways, I really didn't know much about fishing. And fishing really wasn't that hot on a pier. So, we came to Mississippi and um, uh, the land of the alligators and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, really started out bass fishing uh, off the banks. We we moved on to a house that was on the bayou. And uh, he, he he did buy us a little uh, 15-foot runabout boat, but we mostly skied with it. Uh, yeah. We went, we'd, we'd go mow grass one day and uh, ski the next. And, <laughs> and it was, was water skiing. like huh? that all summer, yep. <laughs> yeah, and he bought the boat, came with one. I bet that was like the new thing back then, right? Probably. Yeah. Like well, water well, skiing? Well, kind of. I mean, he bought the boat and it came with a single ski. It didn't even have two skis. and We never skied before. <laughs> what so years was this probably? Seven, uh, 72. 72. Well, yeah. yeah, and so we would go out there and uh, have to figure out how to get up on one ski <laughs> and have never skied before. And it probably took us, it must have took us a week or two before we finally started getting up. But, <laughs> but we came pretty proficient at skiing. And we had little uh, board sailboats, and we used to take those and uh, sail out to Round Island, spend the night, stuff like that. But yeah, but anyways, I, I really didn't get into um, offshore fishing until after I got out of college, really. Um, I always wanted to scuba dive. and um, You went to uh, Mississippi State, right? Mississippi State, yeah. Um, I always wanted to scuba dive, but uh, uh, my parents told me I'd have to save my money. And, you know, when I got enough money, I could go do it. <laughs> and so I, I I didn't know any, I didn't even know how to clear my ears. We used to dive out there in the river off of Griffin Point and Moss Point, and we'd dive down to the bottom of the river, 20-something feet, and our, my ear drones, I, I remember busting them one time pretty bad. Just because you didn't know how to clear I, your ears? I didn't ears. even know how to clear my ears. That's but, crazy. Uh, but, uh, but I always had a passion to dive and to, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you think we take for granted how readily accessible all the knowledge is to go diving now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> like, <laughs> you can yeah. Google, do a quick Google search yeah. or whatever. I do remember we we had a, a fishing seine, too. We used to catch uh, fish and stuff in the seine there at Griffin Point. And one time a reporter came down there, uh, wrote a newspaper article uh, about me and my brother down there, uh, seining up minnows and stuff. I have a twin brother, <laughs> for people who don't know, identical twin. So you guys, yeah, that uh, that's kind of a crucial part to your <laughs> growing up story is having a, a, a twin that wants yep. to do everything the same. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, we were pretty good buds. I mean, Partner we, in crime, right? Exactly. <laughs> we did everything. And so uh, eventually, uh, uh, when I was 17, I finally had enough money to go do, get my uh, scuba diving uh, lessons and I think it back then it was like sixty bucks, <laughs> something. Yeah. <laughs> I think I bought all my gear for like three hundred fifty dollars. Did David go with you, your brother? Did he go with you? Well, that's interesting because uh, uh, he he went. We both did it around the same time, but we went to different instructors. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gulf Coast Divers, which is over in Mobile, still they they used to have a shop in Pascagoula, and that's uh, that's uh, what I went went through that, and he went through. Uh, uh, what did he go with? Uh, 
can't think of the guy's name now. Uh, hmm. uh, it might have been Roland Ballou. But, uh, tell tell us about the course a little bit, because like my my course, just like a real quick version, it was basically like two weekends. You did like a a pool and a classroom situation one weekend, and then the next weekend you were like you know checking out and diving. Like, was it like that for you? Oh, it, or was it? No, it was more stringent. In fact, I, I went through a YMCA. Almost everybody goes through Patty now. Yeah. Uh, back then there was, I don't think Patty was just getting going. I think back then. This was in uh, 77. That's when you got certified in 77? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so they used to make us swim a lot of laps. Uh, it was pretty stringent. And it How took, long did it take you? Yeah. I'm thinking it took about, I'm just going off memory, maybe four weeks or something. Four, four weeks? Four like on weeks. weekends or every day? Uh, it's like twice a week, it seems like. Twice a week for like four weeks or something, something like that. And then you do your <laughs> checkouts, which is not a lot different than they do now. You had checkouts uh, in the springs in Florida, and then you would have a saltwater checkout offshore. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I bet you met a lot less divers, too, than, than what are yeah. right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, it's really changed a lot, especially, uh, I mean, the fishing's changed a lot, too. Because uh, as I grew up, uh, diving was really kind of secondary to fishing. Most people didn't dive, so... We would go fishing, and I'd try to sneak in a dive here and there. <laughs> with people you went with and stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you dive a lot in college, too? Because, I mean. Um, we, there was a, a diving club. In fact, that's a good story. Uh, we, we we had a, a dive club in MSU, and I, and I was in it. And there was probably, there was only about seven or eight people in it. And we planned a trip down to Destin to go diving. And um, we were meeting up at, like, 3 o'clock in the morning, and trucking on down there to, to uh, take a boat out and um so we go to meet and only two of us showed up there were supposed to be six of us <laughs> and the other guy was there and i was there and i was like well what are we gonna do and he said well i'm ready to go i said okay let's go so we go all the way down to destin and and uh the guy's at the boat and he says i can't take just two of you unless you're going to pay the other people's way <laughs> yeah you're like, man. so yeah so we ended up uh finding a, a cattle boat you know it had like 20 students or something on it and we tagged along on that and um there was only one other guy that wasn't actually part of the students and uh we get out to the reef and and we he he's anxious spearfish and we were spearfishing too and he goes down and first so y'all brought spear guns and everything yeah he he act, my my buddy actually rented one a little short gun uh i had a brand new one that i've been itching to try and so I get down to the bottom, and this other guy comes up to me, and he's holding his arms way out, like big fish pointing down the reef. And I was like, oh, he wants to team up on something big. All right, this is cool. So we, <laughs> we truck on down the reef, and sure enough, under this ledge, there's a, a Goliath grouper. You know, we call him Jewfish back then. And, boy, he was a, he was a mon- he looked like a monster. And um, <laughs> anyways, uh, so I start talking to the guy and saying, ah. Uh, you shoot him first and he comes out I'll, I'll shoot him and his <laughs> eyes got real big and he shakes his head no he says i ain't messing with him <laughs> and i said well i don't know what you're gonna do but i'm gonna shoot him and you can do what you want <laughs> and he comes out. so i shot him between the eyes and he come out and the hole and then he turned around went right back in and and um i had a just poly line on it and he broke the line and it was clouded up we couldn't find him i kept looking Finally, I saw a piece of my yellow line, and I and I reached in. I pulled on a little bit. I could tell he was still there. 
So I grabbed the shaft and I pulled them out from in, in the hole and tied my line back to it and um, had them out in the clear, got them about 30 feet up off the bottom. I said, I was, I was like, <laughs> I cut the line and retied it. <laughs> I, yeah, so I was like, I got him now, you know. All of a sudden, boom, he's gone. And I'm like, what the heck happened? And the uh, detachable tip, the wire had broke. <laughs> so <laughs> he was gone. So we come up, and the guys, the other guys already told the captain, oh, he tried to shoot a 200-pound Jewfish. And, and the captain was all mad. He says, you're going to ruin the environment. And he sent two guys down with bang sticks trying to look for it, and they didn't find it. And, and what was weird was usually you dive a different spot, but everybody on the boat said wanted to dive the same spot again. So we went back down, and right towards the end of the dive, everything was kind of clouded up with all the students. And right towards the end of the dive, we had a little air left. And we went to the other side of the reef, and it cleared up, and in the gorge there was a the fish. <laughs> <laughs> so I pulled my knife out. I think I'm going to stick him in the side and finish him. And uh, I couldn't penetrate the scales, and he just flipped his tail a couple times and went about 10 feet up and stopped again. So this time I got up under his gill plate and started working on him. And so I had blood pouring around the water, and I'm stabbing him, and my buddy's there, and he's got his little short tooth, you know, short gun. And I held it out for him to shoot it, and it just bounced off of it. <laughs> <laughs> you shot it, it just bounced off. And then we're about 30, 40 feet up off the bottom. All of a sudden, he just drops his gun to the floor and shoots for the surface. And I, <laughs> I didn't know what happened. Apparently, he ran out of air. And so I went. He had, sucked it clean. Huh? Yeah, so I had to fight my way back down to the bottom because I knew he ran the gun. I'm like, we ain't paying for that. And so I fought my way back down the bottom, got the gun, and came up with that and the fish. And the fish. And, and he's up there screaming at the boat, we need help. I said, don't worry, we got it, we got it. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, that was, that was quite a story. But but it wasn't as big as it sounds. It, it was uh, uh, 73 pounds. We sold it at the fish house. And we got sold paid. it, yeah. Yeah, and it paid for my dive trip anyway, <laughs> so I was happy. That's crazy you were able to, like, sell a fish, a Jew fish. Yeah. as a tourist yeah yeah i mean it's a different world back then they, they started regs i think in the 80s or something somewhere in the 80s they started regulations on those fish wow that's yeah. crazy <laughs> i bet that was like a pretty cool story but yeah actually um i have it written tell, down and tell the girls at school and stuff <laughs> i have it on my uh website i actually had a, written a letter to my mom and dad and yeah, I've actually read that. Yeah. Super cool. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool to see it after all those years. Yeah. able to see it again. But, uh, it's, you know, then again, I guess, you know, after I got out of college and... Would you graduate with, uh, for the listeners? Huh? You graduated with uh, electrical engineering? Yeah, I, yeah, I studied electrical engineering. Yeah, what happened was I, I really wanted to be a marine scientist. In fact, I had my bags packed up and was going to go to... Uh, got a job in Texas. I was going to go established residency there so i wouldn't have to pay out of state tuition then go to uh, galveston and study marine sciences but uh i chickened out at the last minute <laughs> just didn't go i i mean the car was packed and the, the, i woke up that morning and it, it just didn't feel right and i just said no you know uh and and i got a job at uh singing river electric power and they had they were look they had a job for a co-op student so i would go to engineering uh study engineering for you know one semester and then i'd work i'd work a semester and go to school semester and you just alternate so it takes five years instead of four so and actually i liked the idea because they told me i could work i think that's 
I worked almost two semesters first. It was like January or February when I started, and I went all the way up to August until I had to go to school. And mm-hmm. so that's what I did, and um, I figured Jacques Cousteau was an engineer before he was a <laughs> marine scientist, so that's kind of that's kind of way I took that route, but I never did go back. I figured once I got my engineering degree, maybe I would. But uh, after I got through school, I was like, I'm done with school. <laughs> I'm ready to make some money. So, uh, anyways, I stayed on Singer of Power about another five years, uh, doing engineering work and started fishing. And actually, with my boss there, uh, uh, introduced me to fishing. Him and a uh, uh, guy over in Moss Point, who was a buddy of his, took the boats out. And we used to go red snapper fishing. Do you guys, uh, so like you never really fished on the Gulf Coast up until whenever you got out of college? It was more. Right, pretty much. Uh, I'm, a couple times we went out in that little boat I was talking about, and the water was so clear back then. I can remember we dumped anchor over and you could see it sitting on the bottom in 40 feet. <laughs> really? And, yeah, and the water was so clear. But we used to, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know anything about wreck fishing. We'd, we'd go out there with a little Zebco and throw a live shrimp in the water, and all of a sudden I, they were probably bonitas, but something would grab it and <laughs> strip the drag out, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I uh, never knew what it was and broke off. Yeah, um, and, and, like, when you guys were, like, uh, but, like, whatever you, when did you get your, like, first, like, your first boat and you started going out, like, on? Uh, yeah, I was at, when I got out of college uh, and I worked at. So, uh, like, 24, 25? Uh, it would have been 84, so that would have been 24, 25, yeah. 24, 25. Yeah. I had a little 15-foot Mitchell. I had a 70 horsepower on it. I put a Loran on it. Uh some people don't even know Lorraine is these days. <laughs> I've never had one. to use one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I put a Lorraine on it. The only boat I ever knew that small with a Lorraine. I think they they were, back then, they were $600 or something, which was a lot of money back then. And, um, yeah, I'd, I'd go out pretty far in that little boat. Uh, yeah. And started uh, dating your mom. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I can remember coming back in and we had a bunch of fish and she's go let's let's go show it to to my dad and i said i don't know about that i said you think he knows how how small my boat is <laughs> where we're going <laughs> i didn't want this cat out of the bag you know <laughs> so shout yeah. out to the best mom on earth <laughs> yeah yeah so anyways that's that's how i started with that little boat uh after that, I had a, uh, an Aquasport, 24 Aquasport, 24-foot Aquasport. I remember I spent $8,000 on it, wore the heck out of it, had a, I think it was a 200 or something, uh, Evan Root on it, and just slap wore it out. It, I remember the last trip we made you on like it. you like commercial fishing on it? Or? Well, some of both. I mean, see, back then, there wasn't any regulations when I started, and, and um we, I loved it because we'd go out there and we'd fill an ice chest. I could fill an ice chest, and I knew it was I'd get 450 bucks for it, and I'd still have a five-gallon bucket of fish to take home. <laughs> yeah, that's as the much way, as you wanted. That's the way I did it. Um, yeah, that's the way I did it. We, the, the fish house is right around the corner. Uh, you know where Killer Crab is here. Mm-hmm. That's where the fish house used to be. And so I was right around the corner from it. I would just go up there. I didn't have to clean them or anything. Just dump them on the dock. Take and, a picture uh, and go home. <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, I used to make uh, I don't know twenty thousand or thirty thousand dollars a year to selling fish. Just selling fish on the side. Yeah, and then as an engineer, I was making forty thousand. 
But see, then they started regulations, and they said half your income had to come from fishing. Yeah. And so that was about to drive me out. I even called no one. I said, this isn't right. I mean, I'm I'm almost making half my income from it. It doesn't seem right you're pushing me out. What am I supposed to do? You know, well, you got to go to charter fishing or something. Um, unless you got a deck hand, you can list him as an operator. And at the time, uh, Marty McGrath, some people may know him. He he was uh, we were going out a lot together at that time, and he was deck hand. So I, one year I listed him as the operator, and we got our commercial license, and fished one year like that. But then he went off to school, and and so I couldn't do that anymore. And I wasn't business savvy. I found out later some of the others were in my shoes. Uh, all they did was form a corporation, and the corporation made all the money. So they got around it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So really, it's just There's a government a, way of weeding out the little guy like me. You know? Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah. Huh. So anyway. Um, I mean, it's probably for the best, too. I mean, like, I can't imagine if everybody could do that now. I don't know if there'd be any fish left. Well, <laughs> and now you're getting into to my my ideas of how <laughs> things ought to be, which is a lot different what people think and yeah we'll talk about that later on i'm sure we're gonna get into that but like i kind of want to finish up like kind of how so like you're um like you got your boat and stuff when did you start um anybody that knows my dad knows that he was involved in the mississippi gulf fishing banks for a long time when did that start yeah that working with them yeah that was that was in the 80s uh in 85 86 when i when i graduated and like i said my my actually my boss at, at singular power lee hedegaard he he introduced me to the fishing bank so uh, in fact he served as president for him for one year and then uh, uh my paul-in-law uh, your mom's dad he served too uh and i served as vice president with him <laughs> for a couple for several years so uh yeah i was pretty involved with them in fact i think it was 1988 uh they they were uh there were some guys that were doing a lot of studies with them and they were writing up uh uh you know uh reports they were diving the wrecks and they were measuring the heights of the wreck and stuff like that trying to determine the deterioration and you know how long they're living how long they're lasting right and all that and so uh, and they were putting this out for contract every year. So uh, every year we were bidding on it, whatnot. And um, uh, I was able to get the contract one year. I think it was 88. But I actually went to every uh, reef site Mississippi had out there at the time and uh, visited every one of them, drew, drew up uh, engineering drawings, wrote reports on it um and and made a book and we called and it how, and how like what but so, so that for all the listeners the mississippi gulf fishing banks is the is the artificial reef program in mississippi and so like up until this point like how how much stuff have been put on the on the bottom like how much stuff you yeah, said you visited getting, it all in one year yeah so. i'm getting to that um so anyways i called this the blue book is what it was and that same year we actually uh did a really big project that uh uh, there's no way after that one was done that you could visit every one. I think at the time there was maybe 28 or 30 sites or structures, I should say, not sites, uh, structures that were visited, you know. And, um, uh, yeah, so uh, lost my train of thought there. No, it's cool. So you guys, you, you had, you, you went and visited all these sites and basically kind of 
right describe oh, what you saw and yeah what i was going to say was a little bit about the history of the fishing banks okay so uh we got five gulf states and uh the all the gulf states were had pretty good artificial reef programs mississippi was one that uh kind of refused to do it um there was a lot of shrimpers here they didn't want anything on the bottom they, they all they did was get in their nets so there was a lot of resistance to a fishing program but there were charter boats in Biloxi and Gulfport they wanted things on the bottom to fish and so they formed the fishing banks and it was probably in the late 60s when they first started um, so that's how they came to be and it's a non-profit group and um, so fishermen basically said we need to make reefs right. in order to be able and, to fish and, and some of them had political connections so Harrison County would give us $25,000 a year and when I came on board in fact Lee Hedegaard was instrumental in this because he had connections being at the power company and and he got Jackson County to give $25,000 a year to match Harrison County so you guys were so, getting like 50 grand so a year. we were getting 50 grand a year to build reefs it worked out well we never could get Hancock County to pitch in never mm -hmm. even though we did projects over there we thought well if we do projects over there they'll they'll come around no it didn't happen and in fact things went the other way and it was after katrina that re things really went south uh ha harrison county pulled their funds right after katrina and jackson county continued really for i don't know how several years after until they got an attorney that said this isn't legal and they just cut us off completely so, really yeah Hmm. And what year was that? I, I, man, I, I, I don't want to say because I'd probably be way off. <laughs> right, right. But, but then, didn't you guys get funding again after the BP oil spill? No. You know, that was that really irritated me was uh, we didn't get any money from BP. And we tried pretty hard. Uh, we couldn't get any money. And, and I think we were probably more affected than anybody. Hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, just as affected. I mean, if you hear some of the yeah. people that got money from that, you're like, okay, like. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Sure. But yeah, we we couldn't get anything there. There was a few times it looked like we were, and then we weren't, and it never just just never came through. Yeah. Uh, but then the DMR started uh, coming around. They started realizing there's a lot of money in it, and um, some of the places I went, I actually went on some trips with the fishing banks. Like I went to Long Beach, California, for a symposium and stuff. What was and, that? Um, I think that was in the early 90s. Um, About reef building? Yeah, reef building. Uh, it's like a worldwide reef building uh, really? thing. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and uh, we learned a lot there because uh, there were some federal people there, and he explained to me how the sport restoration fund worked, and I never knew how it worked before, but... You know, we were trying to figure out how we can get more funds. And he said, well, we can't give it to a private organization. We can only give it to the states. The states. And the states dish it out. So all the money was coming down to the state, and then the state would decide what to do with it. Hmm. And uh, they they didn't, the state wasn't really giving us much of anything. But they started coming around because the more projects they did, the more money they would get. So uh, they started uh, funding projects through the fishing banks. But it kind of got political, you know. It was like we would. Uh, so, like, whenever you guys first started putting reefs, like whenever you first started with them, you guys would get fifty grand a year from these counties that wanted to support the organization, and you guys could put out like what kind of reefs were you guys putting out? Oh yeah, time? we we did a lot of stuff. Like, what were some of the bigger projects back then? Like the Round Island, like 
all around Round Island, like you were a big part of that, right? Like, yeah, that that was a big thing. Um, but the, the one I was talking about, the year I did the Blue Book, uh, we did uh, four barge loads, two different weekends, 88 concrete housing modules. That probably did more to put snapper in the water than anything else we ever did. I mean, these these barges were loaded like double high. So there's like, With what, gravel? Or? No, they're housing modules. So they're like four walls. And um, and some of them had tops on them, some of them didn't, and they pushed them off with uh, backhoes. And so these were like concrete, like not houses, but just like walled structures, kind of. Like yeah, it's like a like a big room. They were probably like I don't know, interesting. Um, maybe thirty feet long, ten feet high, and ten feet wide. I don't think I've ever dove those. They're not around. Um, well, the storms have taken a lot of them, and that's yeah. that's something we learned was. You know, it's like as we pushed some of them off, some of them broke and crumbled and stuff like that. But as I studied them diving, I found out that the ones that broke and crumbled were uh, actually doing better than the ones that stayed whole. And some of them just laid out. The walls fell over when, when they hit the bottom or something. They laid out flat. Those didn't do very good at all. Mm. They got covered up pretty quick. And but then how, some, much, how much would these cost? Like, and who was building them? Um, they were, like, giving away. They were uh, in Mobile at... Uh, airstrip i can't remember the name of that strip over there um but i, I don't know what the origin was but they were were they uh, expensive well they were they were donated so we just had oh, they were just you just had to get them out there. we just had to get them out there but that's a lot of logistics yeah it's a lot of expense getting and, them out um, there yeah i mean well we had to line it all up you know we had to do everything and we find a contractor and we'd find somebody to load them take them over there and, uh, I, I think it was uh, steiner shipyards that did that project and um you know they you just have to get a contract and you know there was a lot of uh didn't think a lot about liability back then like you do now but you know something go wrong <laughs> yeah i mean we did have one project uh, uh where we took a barge came over to the shipyard to stage it before we brought it out and it sank there at the shipyard mm. so we had to cough up a bunch of money to get it raised to get it raised and, and it man out. we got it out there is we called it the drumming barge because it was peter drummond put it out for us but uh, we got out there just in time. I dove it two weeks later, and the walls were all away, all on the bottom. <laughs> I mean, they, they really? I don't know how they got it out there. <laughs> it lasted two weeks. <laughs> Dang, a big old rust bucket, huh? Yeah, yeah. And we've had others that were better. I can remember one time uh, swimming over to a barge with a, a pack of dynamite, and uh, the guy, and I mean, it was it was primed and ready to blow up. And the guy was on. You the, swam it over to it. Yeah, I swam it over <laughs> to the barge because it it wouldn't finish sinking. You know, we we blew it up and and it stood there sticking out of the water. <laughs> so we had to put another charge on it. And I'm looking back at the boat, and I'm saying, "You make sure he's got that plunger away from." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, like it's, it's not a plunger. I think they have a battery, and you yeah, know, they you connect, connect it. it. But he had the wires in his hand. And all he had to do was hit those wires. You know, Jesus. So, yeah, so it's kind of <laughs> kind of scary. But different uh, way to make reefs now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hardly anybody blows them up anymore. But they they were fun. We did a lot of it back then. With, yeah, I can remember watching like watching them, like because I mean, like for all the listeners, like I feel like this is where I got a, a big passion was like my dad is a part part of his job with the fishing banks was to go monitor whenever they were putting out they were deploying reefs and then also once a month we would like go out and survey them so like i don't i mean did you know whenever you made whenever you you started doing that work that that was going to be like a the facilitator for the the rest of your kids kind of passion too no, no not really I, I did something kind of smart because we, we were bidding that project out every year 
and most of the time I would get it. Sometimes I, a couple of years I did not get it. And um, so one year I decided I'm, I'm going to put in a contract that's open-ended and it's not going to end until they say it ends. And that was really smart because then we didn't have to bid it out every year and they just let me keep doing it. <laughs> so they just let you roll yeah. with it. Yeah, and eventually it changed uh, leadership and stuff and they, they, don't, they couldn't even find the, the contract so they, they didn't even know what the arrangement was. <laughs> so I, I don't know but but i liked it i i got to go dive once a month sometimes it's kind of hard because you know you try to do it once a month so that you'd have a report and try to get interest in the group you know because people would come and they'd really come for the report yeah like people like to hear right. about it and, and so then you guys were growing up and um it worked out good for me because i had some buddies on the boat yeah it gave us a reason to go and i, I can remember sometimes it was like we didn't necessarily, like, you would almost, like, we got to go, we, you know, we haven't been out this month. It'd be, like, December or something like that or, or mm-hmm. you know, February or March. Yeah. I got to make like, a dive before the meeting. got to make a dive before the meeting. We're like, all right, you know, and then you go and you realize that, like, man, that was actually a lot of fun. I'm glad, like, and it was kind of a job. I mean, it wasn't really a job at times, but it was definitely, like, a, a mm-hmm. push to go. Whenever push you, to go. Mm-hmm. A push to go when you didn't necessarily, like, have yeah. to go. Yeah, you know, but like, the hard part was writing the reports. People yeah, don't know what yeah, kind of time I that. put into that. Yeah, you put a lot of time into that kind of stuff, and, like, we never really had to do much. I would go to the meetings with you sometimes, but, yeah, you definitely did all that stuff. Of course. I, I guess you probably could tell the story about me diving you guys young on the boat. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, it was kind of wild. <laughs> I remember you telling. Remember, yeah, it's, I do tell a story from time to time that, like, you know, when my dad would, we would be, like, we all dove by 10 or 11, but from like, you know, we'd all be four, six, seven or something like that. My dad would go diving and he would tie down the radio on the steering wheel and say, if you don't see me in a couple hours or an hour, you know, call the Coast Guard and give them those numbers right there. <laughs> yeah, I'd set the GPS so you yeah. could see the numbers. And, and he'd come up and we'd all be crying because <laughs> You know, it would be clear down there. He'd be like, oh, it was great down there, you know. <laughs> he was just enjoying himself. And we'd come. Oh, my gosh. Uh, but, yeah, that's that's how we, we. That's how you grew up. That's how we grew up. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And he'd say, yeah, don't tell mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, and I got a kick out of that video that, uh, you know, the uh, Mississippi broadcasting people used to come down. Uh, uh, Kirk Loy used to come down and take him fishing yeah, my three while. sons <laughs> yeah and he did a video we, we weren't even intending to do that video we were just going out fishing or whatever and i said well the wife's working i'm gonna have to take my boys we hope don't mind and that's fine that's fine <laughs> and then after it's all over he says you know what i said he said i enjoyed your boys so much he said that's that's what i'm doing the story on my three sons <laughs> and it was a pretty good little show <laughs> yeah it's still on youtube i'm sure we'll we'll tag it in this podcast um but yeah, if you guys, um, when, when, um, I know it's probably a backtrack too. When did you decide to make your own website? Because like a lot of people, you know, you from primofish.com. Like my whole life, it's on the side of his boat. And um, I don't know. I just, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm always been interested in computers and all. I kind of uh, just started with. I was like. You know, I got pictures, and you try to, you know, people don't know what to do with the media, and I didn't know what to do with it, and I'm like, well, why not I just do a website, you know, with my pictures, and the website's here in my house. It's not it's not hosted anywhere. I just point You do it, it yourself. I do it right here, yeah. 
So uh, I wasn't worried about storage and paying bills for it. It's just I was going to have internet anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, I just started doing that. And of course, I, weather's a big part of it. I think a lot of people know my weather page. Uh, and although I don't, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on it. I even had some people criticize me one time. Well, why did you do this? Why? I said, what do you want for free? <laughs> yeah, for free, right? <laughs> All I do is put some links on there so I can tell what the weather's doing. But, uh, it's yeah. crazy that stuff never got monetized. So somebody said, mm-hmm. though, I think somebody told me not long ago, it's, it's amazing that your dad, out of all three of y'all, none, none of y'all are a YouTube YouTuber <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, and I... <laughs> And I've never made a cent off of YouTube. And I'm, well, How many videos do you I, have on I YouTube? I shouldn't say that because not YouTube directly, but I have had some footage taken from the Animal Planet and um, Discovery Channel and a couple of those. You know, they just bought a few seconds. A few know, minutes or something. Seconds. seconds yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they're usually pretty short. Right. And uh, But, you know, not more than two, $300 at a whack, you know, so... Yeah, not much. But um, the but it was probably '96, I think, when I started actually putting the pictures and doing links. So you know, now my website's got galleries. I try to do most of them. There's obviously several of them I've, I've missed. Yeah, it takes a lot of work to do that. There's <laughs> a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> organizing. Yeah, in and fact, I'm working on still how working you, on. How many YouTube videos do you have? There's like 700. Oh gosh. Oh. You know, I don't even know that number. I got, I saw a report. YouTube sends you these uh, reports or whatever periodically. I want to say it said twenty thousand views a month. So what hmm. I'm getting, my my subscriber base is only two point three k or something. It's not very many. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I get a lot of people comment say, "Man, this is an underrated channel." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, of course, I started out not doing it very well. I think my videos are a lot better now. I try to get them as short as I can, but it's hard. You know, it's hard yeah, to do that. Yeah, yeah. That's what it is with monetizing, right? You have to keep people's attention for a long span yeah, of time. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing. Now they just started this short video thing. YouTube keeps hitting me up for that. They want you to do these short videos. That's what people want, really, are short videos. But I do it more for a memory. I like to go back and watch it, you know. And I used to do, I used to try to do videos like on each spot, you know, like this rig or that rig. So if you wanted, so if you wanted to see if that rig, you know, you could find it. But then I, I figured out that I wanted to go see a certain trip, and I'd find one of them, and I couldn't find the other one. And right. So, so now it's all chronological. Right? So yeah. So I try to do it chronologically, so that uh, and my trips are I try to do on one video. So. You know, it might be a long video, but it's got the whole trip in it. And it, to you me, it's more it satisfying up. to me because I see the whole trip. <laughs> right, right. You can see the whole trip. Yeah. I can skip through it, you know. but That's but yeah. cool. Yeah. Super cool. But, um, so, and, like, you started, so, like, after you started doing, like, the commercial fishing kind of went away, you started taking people? Like, you did some yeah, so, and stuff? Yeah, so when, when uh, Marty went off, and I couldn't get my license the next year. Uh, you know, they told me I'd go get a, I'd start charter fishing. So I said, well, I'll try that. So, so I went to uh, captain school, and, uh, and uh, it only takes about a week or so. I already had the sea time. That sea yeah. time's a hard part. So, I, and I <coughs> so I got I got that and um, started chartering. I thought, I, oh man, I'm gonna like this. I, I'm gonna charter full time. This was this was when I left the power company. <coughs> Um, I left the power company, I think, in 91. Me and one of the bosses kind of butted heads some. And 
they came to me actually and said they thought I needed to find some work somewhere else and I'm not going to go into the story what led up to that but but uh you know it's a crushing feeling you know and and mom was just getting out of nursing school and she was just fixing to start so the timing was kind of right for that so I said look you know I'll, I'm gonna try it on my own and we'll live on your salary and it's just if it doesn't work I'll go find a job but um but it worked out uh you know, I started doing everything I knew what to, you know, anything I could do that I had talent for. And fishing was one of them, but I found out pretty quick that I didn't want to do it full time. I was, there was a 38-foot uh, delta I was running out of Mary Walker, uh, the Mistral Two, And I would, uh, man, I think it just wore me out. I would, I'd be out there, you know, with the crew at daybreak to take them out. And then I'd come back, I'd be working till. 10, 11 o'clock at night, cleaning the boat up for the next crew the next morning. And I can remember one time on a five-day stretch, I think it was the fourth day or something, and we're going out and, the, you know, the crew's there and there's a guy, he's real happy and he wants to come up on the bridge, up on the flying bridge where I was. And I said, yeah, come on up. He comes up there and goes, man, you got it made coming out here in the sunshine every day. And <laughs> it's I could all just, fresh. Yeah, and I could just feel my fist balling up you know i was like you have no idea what I got. <laughs> but i found out the pay wasn't any good the work was hard and i wasn't having any fun anymore so, yeah the so fun wore off real quick it wore off and um so i was doing electrical work too wiring trailers and then they people wouldn't pay you i did uh, engineering for architects and they would take 120 days to pay you and and uh computers were just coming out and so computers was the only thing I didn't have, you have to knock on doors. People were knocking my door down trying to get help. And so computers just kind of took off. I just, this was kind of a natural progression. So I started doing computers. I opened a store in uh, Pascagoula. I think it was in 97. Uh, I worked out of my house two or three years, four years, I don't remember. And then had a store on Market Street for probably two years. And then we bought a building up on Highway 90. And... Uh, we were on pretty good up to about 2,000, uh, had probably a dozen employees, and things were rolling pretty good, but then Walmart came to town, and Office Depot came to town, and, <laughs> and uh, I'm not as good a manager as I am a worker, and I had employees stealing from me and whatnot, so eventually I, I waited too long, but I eventually shut it down in 2003, and just went back to working by myself. Hmm. But I found fishing was a good part-time job, and that's that's <laughs> what I really enjoyed because I was mostly on the weekends. Most people could go on the weekends anyway, and so it was a great part-time job. Um, when when you know weekend came, I was ready to go, and people had a lot better trip. People, yeah. But I also ended up doing very long trips because I like to take full advantage of the whole day. <laughs> Yeah, anybody that knows my dad, it was sun up to sundown most of the time. <laughs> yep, that's, uh, that's the reputation I got. People call me, well, how long are we going to go out? Sun up to sundown. And that's what we did. <laughs> Pictures to prove it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, yeah, and, and you got your the uh, boat you still have now in 96, I, right? I bought that boat in 96. I bought a brand new in uh, Boat the Show fish. from McLeod Marine in uh, Pascagoula. Uh, yep. I remember that boat. The sticker price at the boat show was 35000 <laughs> They cost a lot more now. <laughs> I think I think everything out the door was 48000 by the time I put $7,000 $7, worth of electronics on it. And, 
And how many engines? It's a single engine boat, but how many yeah. engines have you had? Single engine boat. I'm on number five, which is a Yamaha. I've been through two Mercury's and two Hondas. I never buy a Honda again. <laughs> and um, and and the Yamaha. The Yamaha's been the best one. I'm probably going eight years on this one, and most of them have only last five. No, oh, wow, really? Eight years on this one? Mm-hmm. Next, you're going to have to be on the Suzuki train. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And as I'm starting to think it's going to be an island boat now. <laughs> I don't know. I might have to jump on your boat now when I want to go. <laughs> yeah, we'll make that happen. Yeah. But you're still you're still diving? <laughs> I'm still diving. I, I really slowed down a lot this last year. I mean, mostly I think because people just don't call me to go. Everybody's got boats now. they got friends with boats. So, uh, boats and there's and clubs. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I became active with the Deepwater Mafia Dive Club, and they've got a, a channel that is nothing but a dive channel. Like when you want to boat, get on a boat, or you need somebody to get on your boat, and you post a message, and boom, you're on there. And yeah, and they do it all for splitting fuel, you know, which is mm-hmm. not the way I used to do it. <laughs> I used to do mostly fishing trips, and you know, sometimes I get a dive, and say, yeah, you can come dive. But, yeah, yeah. But mostly fishing. Yeah, and so um, I guess. Uh, you you were involved in the fishing banks, um, like pretty much from you said eighty two, uh, eighty four, eighty five, somewhere. Eighty four, eighty five mm-hmm. until when did you guys? Um, I don't know. Probably what four, three, four years ago. Was it? Yeah, probably like four, maybe five yeah. years. Huh? Yeah, maybe. My, my, I'm real bad with time if I'm not <laughs> looking at it. But, yeah, um, we kind of parted ways. Uh, the DMR got a lot more involved with the fishing banks. And um, I remember I got I got bit by a dog on my ankle, and it was keeping me from being able to dive. And we had gotten a contract, actually, with uh, Southern Mississippi to uh, do water quality recorders. Um, Scott, and that's uh, something Milroy. you've been pretty passionate about. I remember you used to always talk about that growing up, the water quality. Yeah, yeah, how it changed. Exactly, it has changed a lot. It's gotten a lot worse. So I was excited about that project. In fact, I was really trying to help the fishing banks generate money with it because they were paying us. uh, They were taking probably seventy percent of the money uh, that was coming in for that project, and I just told them to just keep paying me the same rate that my contract called for. So you were making the money off of you. Yeah, they were making money off of me quite a bit, and. I remember that I had the dog bite, and so I was getting some some of the help with the Deepwater Mafia to go out and and do the dives for these uh, water quality sensors. Uh, I ended up having to dive anyways because they made three dives on uh, the deep wreck out there in FH7, and they could the water quality was so bad they couldn't find the wreck, and I ended up diving and getting it anyway. <laughs> but uh, we were coming back in and through Dog Keys Pass and got stopped by the DMR. And going out there, got to back up a little bit. We were, uh, some of the guys that were on the boat were fishermen. And so we were doing a little fishing too. And we had a couple of cobia come up to the boat and they disappeared. And we, and the water was not very clear. We couldn't really see them very well. But somebody caught it, you know, they caught a couple of small snapper. And I said, well, throw them the live well because cobia come up, you know, we'll, we'll toss it to them. Right. And I know you're not supposed to do that, but everybody does that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah. But anyways, I forgot they were even in there. So we were coming to Dog Keys Pass, and the DMR stopped us, and he's searching the boat. We think we're fine. He opens up the live well. Oh, well, we got here. Is that for where the aquarium? 
yeah I, I have an aquarium here at my house so you know i wasn't at the time wasn't worried about it like six inch fish or something so, so you were probably going to put them in the aquarium yeah yeah i was going to put them in the aquarium uh, that's why i didn't really think about it and um anyways he he wrote tickets for it but one of the guys on the boat kept trying to talk his way out of it you know oh we do work for y'all you know we we do, we do work for the fishing bank so you know you need to let us off but he said well i gotta write a ticket but he said if you get somebody to call me monday he said i'll i'll hold them till then and if you get somebody to call me we'll you know and take, we might take care of it and and i i said well do you know so and so and he says yeah and i said if he calls you he'll, he'll help us and yeah yeah so i said okay so i get back and i called my contact there at the dmr that uh, was over the uh, reef fish stuff and um he says yeah i'll call him and see what's up and he, he called me back a little later said uh he won't talk to me he said he won't even take the call and and i had found the guy on uh, the the rose ticket on facebook and i had friended him and he accepted and and then he unfriended me and then he wouldn't communicate with me at all and he, you know it just it just kind of pissed me off that he he told us one thing and then didn't do it right and so i thought well i'll, I'll go above that so i wrote the director an email the director of the dmr um and i said had explained the situation and he said he'll check into it but i but i had mentioned uh the fishing banks and i'd mentioned our water quality project and so i thought i better send them an email they might get blindsided by this you know yeah so i sent them a copy of what i sent him well fishing banks got all pissed off about it and wrote a big apologetic letter and that basically eventually they just uh uh dropped me yeah they just it's like a big enough they can it was basically like you got baggage now yeah yeah so making a strong stance here mark we don't we don't want this we don't want this type of stuff right and organization and and my stance was aren't you guys about the you know the red snapper and stuff i mean you you hear about something legal but you're not looking at the full picture you know we're here building reefs that we can't even fish right and that's what it turned into the snapper regulations got so bad you couldn't even go out and catch them and almost all our reefs are in water that is not deep enough for a lot of these other fish. We don't catch hardly anything but red snapper. Yeah. It's just so ironic to me the the amount of reefs and structure and homes that you built for those fish, and they like mm-hmm. they want to like get mad over two uh, fish. And it was probably, I mean, like but, some people might say it was the way that you emailed so directly. Yeah, and yeah. Well, so he, official. He was very mad that I basically called the officer a liar. Yeah, but but he did lie to me. He told me he would hold it, and if I got somebody contact him, he would he yeah. would look at it. But he wouldn't even communicate. He could have just told me, "Hey, uh, I changed my mind. I'm not doing anything." Now I would have been fine with that. But it's yeah. just the way he approached it. The way he did it. Yeah. The way he, yeah he ran from. It. But um, it worked out financially. It worked out better for me because uh, the other side of it was that water quality program. I asked the guy, I said, well, do you have to go through the fishing banks or you can work directly with me? He said, no, I can work directly with you. You've done a good job. And so financially, I started getting 100% of the money then. And so it actually worked out. It worked out pretty good, you know, but that went on maybe three more years or so. And uh, then COVID came around. And that worked and, dried up. And, yeah, and that dried up. Dang. Yeah. So, yeah. So for like the past, what, two years, you haven't been doing much of... Well, them. not 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 
not making money put going out put it yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm spending money so that causes you to go less yeah when you make money going out there it's a nice thing you're doing well, you something. had like a real passion oh yeah I saw my whole life like a real passion for like just documenting what mm-hmm. you saw out there like right more I mean a lot more unique and more organized than like anybody else and I think that was because the fishing banks kind of made it like that for, mm-hmm. for us you know that's right yeah it was a pretty cool um you know pretty cool thing to be able to do but i mean like the 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 fishing banks from what you used to tell me is you guys could put out a reef you know for like five or or ten grand Mm -hmm. for you know like a a pretty elaborate reef yeah and and then and then it started to move um things were like a lot more expensive oh yeah right yeah some things people so yeah the dmr started getting involved and all of a sudden we had they would tell us what contractor to use and and uh, they even helped to get a lot of material. I mean, they were doing a lot of legwork. So they started doing legwork, which, of course, we liked. We didn't have to do the legwork. We were right. volunteering Right, you're volunteers. Yes, yeah, a lot of so, free work. But the price was quite a bit different. Instead of $10,000 reefs, we were doing fifty, dollars $50,000, $60,000, And they're getting the money from the state? The state um, was funding Yeah, the state was funding it. I mean, they, a lot of it comes from the federal government. And I should say we did some matching back, you know, like that module project I mentioned. We did like we only had to cough up ten percent of the funds, and we got uh, the rest was the state was helping with uh, matching ninety percent. Okay. So there was a lot of federal money involved in some of those big projects. <coughs> but uh, the weird thing about the DMR is they would they would uh, give us a check for a certain amount. We had to write that same exact amount to the contractor. So we were still volunteering our time to do all a lot of legwork but uh not getting any income and and then the counties dried up so we were we weren't really making anything and we used to try to keep a hundred thousand dollars in the bank as a like a you know a liability type account you know in case yeah. something happened and you had to pay for it like that barge sinking you know right uh that's what but it was. like i mean if the states if the states pretty much because like the dmr has an artificial reef program now right right now they they pretty much yeah taken it over but they the permits but are like still what's held the, by what's the, the purpose oh, okay so the, the fishing banks holds the permits that the dmr operates yeah under. and i don't understand why they didn't take them over here recently they they uh the so without expired. the permits, without the permits, the Mississippi Gulf Fishing Banks is like nothing really, right? Right. I mean, yeah. If yeah. the state would decide to own the permits, yeah, if and, the and we decided to. and we handed over quite a few of the permits to them, like on the inshore sites. We used to do a lot more. There's a, there's like 13 FH sites we call them. Yeah, the and, fish havens. But there were but know. there were a lot of other sites that were inshore, like limestone and stuff off the piers and stuff like that. Cat Island has a site. We handed that over to the DMR. They they just took the permit on that. But, um, yeah, so the permits are uh, the only thing that really kept the fish banks alive. Hmm. And do you think that, that, that they'll probably come and take those over, or what's the motivation for them? Not? I, I would think so. I, I don't know, you know. It's now I'm not involved. I, I mean, I guess they want the public involved in some way, so it gives them, like, an out in that kind of way. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know what what their angle is. You know, I I felt like you know, like the the leadership and the fishing banks, as of late, has not changed much. And I can remember early on when I was involved, we had a hard time finding people who would serve as president or vice president or officers. 
Because nobody wanted to do a bunch of work, you know, and not get paid for it. Yeah, it's hard to. Yeah, uh, you have it's to. Hard com- to you do. have to commit. It's hard to but commit to things for free. Yeah, I guess like moving on from like uh, that, like what I mean, like we talk about it fairly often now because like, like on my podcast, I'm sure people hear me talk about like reef building. People probably like maybe even think that like I don't think that there's a lot being done, which is kind of the opposite. Like I've seen my whole life what has been done, but. I also see how much more could be done. Yeah, a lot more know. could be done here compared. You compare with Alabama and Florida, man, they they are they are offloading stuff. They are yeah. offloading stuff, and you know, as I was getting growing up and stuff, um, the uh, Florida didn't have hardly any red snapper. We used to call triggerfish destined snapper. <laughs> really? Yeah, because they just didn't have them. They were it, most of them are concentrated in Alabama because Alabama had such a big program and uh, building reefs. And I stuff. remember talking to uh, Dr. Bob Ship one time, and I said, uh, "Yeah, the further east we go, the more snapper we find." He goes, "That's interesting." And the further west we go, we find. Them. <laughs> hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting how that developed. And then the, the lionfish thing is kind of interesting because a, a lot more lionfish in Florida panhandle than there is. And then Alabama, you start they start to fade out a little bit. In Mississippi, we don't get very and Louisiana many. Louisiana's, yeah, it's also. Louisiana get them on the rigs, few. kind of. Yeah, but, yeah, not really. but not a big population, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It is interesting. But do you think that the, like the population of the red snapper grew to, due to all the, like, human intervention of reefs well well i think the regulations help the red snapper but uh i i think they're i still think they're too strict of course you know if you want to get into the regulations i can tell you my story on that but uh, (laughs) (laughs) but uh yeah i mean you know my my thoughts on the matter is that they they should be dividing groups up with different rules uh, I think there should be the same rules for everybody. I don't see why a recreational guy shouldn't be able to sell fish. I don't see why. Uh, I mean, everybody's after the same thing. And if you're, everybody has the same rules to follow, then everything becomes fair. And all all, all the division does is pit people against each other. And it, they really made it worse because there was recreational commercial. Now they've taken the recreational and taken out the charter for higher people and, and started different rules for them. Yeah. And, in fact, that drove me out of the charter fishing. Uh, uh, I used to buy the state license because I couldn't get the federal license. And they started making different rules for that. And they, and it got to a point where I, if I bought a commercial red snapper license for the state, I could only fish like nine days. Yeah. <laughs> and if I didn't, I could get in the recreational plan. It was Labor Day to Memorial Day to Labor Day. So, yeah, and fish in state so waters. Why, yeah, so why buy a license if I'm – you know, because if I got stopped, I could, even though I could say, hey, this is a recreational trip, he could say, no, you got a charter license. So I just quit buying one. Yeah. It didn't make any sense, you know. But, um, I mean, there's a lot you'd have to figure out to make the same rules for everybody. I realize that, but I think it could be done. Yeah. I, and I know that the commercial guys, they're going to just do more of it, and that's fine. Yeah. But, and I believe in bag limits, and I believe in, um, Sanctuaries. I think they need to have some sanctuaries. They don't do enough of that. Like uh, places that you can't right, fish not, at all. But not large areas. You know, that's where they go wrong. They've, they've got some sanctuaries in Florida for grouper, but they're really, really big. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, you know, to me, you they know, need It's interesting that you say that because I went on my honeymoon to Belize, mm-hmm. and uh, there's this place called, if you ever go, it's called the Whole Chan Reef. 
And um, I I saw I saw it on on the chart, and I saw there's like a gazillion boats there, mm-hmm. and like a gazillion people, and I didn't really want to go. And I talked to like a local there, and he's like, "Man, you want a really cool snorkel spot? Go to the whole Chain Reef. It's badass." Mm-hmm. And you get in the water, and it's unbelievable. They got giant dog snapper, like African pompano swimming awesome. around, like really big, like other groupers and stuff. But it's there's but there's no like. There's no fences or, like, right. it's not roped off or right. anything. It's just an area they don't let people take. But it just doesn't even make sense to me how well it worked. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for that area. I don't know. But, like, those no, type I, of sanctuary I type I think it would work here. Where, you know, you know yeah. I like to take pictures and stuff. And and I used to go out. Yeah. And I'm telling you, when I had my little Mitchell, I used to go out to the Tortuga. You know where that is, by the where the gas wells used to mm-hmm. be, not too far from there. And... That was one of my favorite spots because I had a little small boat. And it was yeah. like three or four miles past Petty Boy. And I would go there regularly, and I had fish that knew me. I mean, I would go down and feed them. There were groupers and trigger fish, and, and they knew me. And yeah. and uh, you, you can't get that anymore. Yeah. Uh, I tagged a, a grouper one time and caught him. We went fishing somewhere else. And we came back, tried that spot again, and caught him three hours later. <laughs> Same fish. <laughs> I go, oh, this one's got a tag. Let's see what number it is. Yeah. Oh, well, we tagged him this morning. <laughs> That's pretty wild. You tagged him that, that quick. Yeah. I actually tagged uh, over 4,000 red snapper back in the 90s. Uh, I ran a program for the fishing bank. So uh, we, we bought tags from uh, some place in Australia. Had my home phone number on. I had an answer machine. And... Uh, uh, a lot of people participated, but I probably tagged a lot more than anybody else. Really? Yeah. Hmm. And uh, we found out they 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 grow uh, in the summertime. They grow a little faster in the winter. They probably go up as much as three quarters to an inch a month in the in the summer, maybe a quarter inch to half an inch in the winter. And they're highly residential. They don't move a whole lot, but things do make them move sometimes, like a storm or something like like that. You know. But they were pretty much the ones that were caught there. Mm-hmm. Pretty much the residential. Usually you catch them in the same place. Same general them. area. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that makes sense too, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what you would expect, I guess. And I've seen the species change too. You know, we used to catch uh, red grouper. I remember three, four years straight, there was a lot of red grouper. And now I haven't seen one in years. <laughs> yeah, or like the first time you ever took mom fishing. That's a pretty interesting story. Oh, yeah, that was interesting. I took her out there in that little 15-footer on, on the Blue Wing in the Mississippi. I think we were on the Mississippi, which is right there by the Blue Wing. And uh, she hadn't been out there before, and she she dropped her line down. She reeled it up. She caught something, reeled it up. It's octopus. An octopus. I said, wow that's i still have never caught an octopus i said wow that's wild i I don't think we have ever caught one of those i said that's that's crazy she caught three more in a row (laughs) (laughs) so she caught four octopuses yeah and and i went down there i made a dive there i said i gotta see what's going on down there and uh there was just Just octopi in every little hole they were just everywhere (laughs) they were just down there spawning (laughs) (laughs) i guess she hatched and there was they were growing up there that's really i mean they weren't big octopi i mean i still have never i mean i've still i mean i think we i was on a trip and somebody might have shot one one time or something Mm -hmm. like that but like i've never caught one hook and line Mm -hmm. (laughs) it never happened that's just crazy to me I have to ask some other people if they've ever caught one. Mm. That's that's a pretty rare catch. Yeah, that's, that's pretty rare. <laughs> but um, like you guys were um, like where where do you think that like we we kind of 
moved on on some other stuff but when you were talking about like fishing regulations and how that we we should all about about the same thing i I feel like i've had these same thoughts before because you know it it almost doesn't make sense that you can like we can eat king crab down here in mississippi or we can eat you know right any kind of fish that we want down here in mississippi that they ship it in when they ship it in you know like to me, like if you know that this is this, we're talking about some stuff that probably never happened because they're so far down oh, yeah. the path of catch shares won't. and and all these types of things that you know if if they couldn't let red snapper go north of I ten if they mm-hmm. made a line somewhere and said it couldn't go north and people had to come here in order to eat red snapper then there would be a lot of culture that forms around that red snapper and how to cook it and how to prepare it and people would be very passionate about it like you can see this and like if you go play somewhere like italy how much you know passion they have in like fresh pasta and things like that but um yeah i mean it it's yeah another facet that i did mention was i don't think there should be any closures on any species of fish I, i don't think you can fish them to exhaustion i do believe in limits but I don't think they should close the season. I think it has the opposite effect of what they intend, and it makes things unsafe because people then derby fish. You know, as soon, they as, it opens, one time. as soon as it opens, they're out there opening day. They don't care what the weather is, and they only get two fish a person, so they're going to load that boat up to the max. Yeah. And it creates unsafe environment, and that's against it the— It limit. People want to catch their limit. <laughs> and that and that's against the Magnuson-Stevenson Act, which is what they're going on, really, which mm-hmm. all this stuff is coming off of. And it's against it. Safety is one of the, is paramount and yeah. all this stuff, and that's very unsafe. They've had boats collide out there. Yeah, yeah, because of so much traffic. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's it's unbelievable. And, and 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 there is a lot of money that fuels that. But, like people want there's businesses mm-hmm. and tourism and stuff. They want people to know that they can come in every mm-hmm. June. Like even if June is the worst month for us to harvest snapper. They're so far in right now with all that money and everything and that it they is will the still. It prop to me, it is. That's, that's when where they're the spawning. Ones are. They're that's, coming in and laying all these little small ones. That's when they're spawning. Yeah, mm-hmm. and so, but and then like, it's hard for them to contradict that because they've been doing that for red snapper for so mm-hmm. long. Because if you ask them, they'll say, "Well, if you take them out now when they're spawning, or if you mm-hmm. take them out in a few months, it's the same." They say it's the same it's thing, not. but it's not. It's, it's not really it's, the same it's thing. Not. <laughs> and, and people make different decisions. You know, if if the season's getting ready to end, they're going to say we got to go before it ends. Uh, if if they didn't close it, they you'd say, oh, we'll just go the next weekend, or we'll go. You know, yeah, we'll go. They're whenever. not going to pressure them yeah. as much. Yeah, and I, I, you know, and I, people, people get upset about the. But they can lower the limit. I could go down to one fish per boat. See, I'm, I, I'm on with with, with but, you. But I can't. That. I can't tell you how many times I've gone out there and the snapper was closed and a guy caught a 25-pound snapper and it's, he's never caught one before in his life. He wants to take it home. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I mean, you know, I guess the, what they say, the, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. <laughs> but but I will mention my website. I do have a website up. It's erfa.us, Equal Rights Fishing Alliance, erfa.us. If you want to see my views, that's where you can find it. That's It's got it all spelled out there. Huh? Yeah, and, and, of course, it didn't do any good, but I, at the time I felt like I'm going to speak my mind, and I, I probably would make some modifications to it if I went and looked at it right now because I haven't pulled it up in a long time. But those pretty much point out my views. I just, yeah. You know, I just feel like I make my statement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, I mean, I, I agree that, like, you know, 
people mm-hmm. I, I think as fishermen we need to come to an agreement that we need uh like low limits mm-hmm. but uh, no closures like right for recreational fishermen like yeah to me that that's what i would like to see happen mm-hmm. but also i mean just while we're on the topic like i i, I would like and sometimes I've I've thought about with like with triple tail, if they did like an every other year harvest on mm. those because they grow so quick yeah. or like cobias like you could alternate triple tail and cobia you mm-hmm. know what I mean like have you can harvest cobia one year but not the next because it is it's almost like they if you gave them a break for a year like I just feel like you know rather yeah. than just hurting on I, them every year I so don't know. hard I don't know how much. Be- big a difference that makes because like bp oil spill shut everything down and and uh you can look at the graphs there might have been a little bit of a, a improvement but not huge no not well i mean i know a lot thing. of the fishermen at, down in venice would say otherwise that yeah. they would say that the fishing was extremely good after they closed it down for a year which to me like anytime there's no pressure it's really good yeah you know, like if there's a lot of bad weather for a while it's well storms moving around yeah, and, and you know it doesn't seem as impactful as it used to be, and I'm not sure why, but but back, you know, a couple of decades back, uh, anytime we had a storm, we were out there fishing right behind it because yeah, yeah, uh, fishing was magic right after a storm. But yeah. it it don't seem as impactful as it used to be. I don't think we've had too many that. I mean, I, we've I think had it's a like few. a. I think it's like a timing and a place thing, like fishing in the right spot after the, maybe I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it just moves them around, but I'm not sure why it doesn't make as big an impression as it used to to me because it uh-huh. it used to be unbelievable. Maybe it's because there's so many people fishing now and they hit those spots. You know, maybe there was a lot of secret spots we didn't know about, and the storm would move them, move the fish, the and they would find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe that's it. Then they'd move on to your spot, and you, you yeah, get you them. get them. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I don't know, but it's, yeah, it's interesting. I'll tell you something else that, that scientists don't get, and I, I saw it personally because I used to fish a lot, is the relationship between uh, reef, tooth reef species in particular is triggerfish and red snapper uh, because before there were regulations, you could tell when places got hammered because uh, average size red snapper back then maybe. 10, 12 inches or something, you know, and you, you'd be happy to get a 13, 14 inch fish. But when the snapper population dwindled, the trigger fish population exploded. They have an inverse proportion uh, to each other. And the opposite would happen if the trigger fish population went down, the snappers exploded. Really? I, I think they eat each other's eggs or something. But see, when they implement they the regulations. They have some type of a re- re- relationship there? Well, they live on the same reefs. And I've seen, I've seen their nests down there, little holes on the bottom. And I think they they eat each other's eggs and nests or something. I, I don't I, I don't think that maybe the triggerfish legs. A scientist probably could tell us, but but I know that relationships there. I mean, we used to get, the triggerfish used to be so bad at times that uh, they would uh, jump out of the water trying to get your bait. I mean, they'd come right up to the boat and and then jumping trying to get your bait, <laughs> and we would couldn't get to the bottom because of the triggerfish. So we'd go out and catch snapper at night because triggerfish don't bite during the nighttime if it's dark you won't catch a trigger fish really but you put your bait down there at nighttime and you'll catch a snapper but you won't catch a trigger fish hmm. so that used to be a trick we used you to always be. go at night just to get away from the triggers mm-hmm. that's wow. why it worked back then but with these regulations they put regulations on trigger fish like we're over over catching them but the problem is there's too many snappers 
Yeah. So you really can't mess with Mother Nature as much as we. Yeah, I, I've talked. I mean, like, what about the um, like, the, if you look at graphs about uh, red snapper, um, I think it's from 2004 to 2007. The average size grew by like five pounds. Did yeah. you? Did you witness that? Like, yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and it was it was kind of weird because back then we caught a lot of small snapper, but you'd move off to some of these deeper spots and stuff where people weren't fishing as much, and you would catch you might catch a thirty thirty five pounder. Would, like would, your your over thirties were more common. You yeah, felt like yeah, I felt like they were. Like now, you know, fifteen to twenty pound snapper is is average almost. Almost at yeah. times, yeah. When you're catching in the beginning of the season, yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's different. You know, there's a lot more of that middle-sized fish, but not as many big sounds. Yeah. Yeah. And not as many little ones. And I've talked to – I've had scientists on the show that says that that might be because of fishing techniques. Do you not agree with that? No, I don't agree with that. I mean, I don't think there was anything that I, – I don't agree with that. I think snapper are kind of a dumb fish. They just – they eat any kind of – beat you put down <laughs> yeah yeah that's it. now sometimes they shut off yeah don't yeah. get me wrong but but uh but they're 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 big on smells you know yeah put yeah something smelly down i mean there. i definitely think that like of all the people i've talked to without a doubt just about every single one of them that have snapper fished in the early 2000s that would say that the average size with grew with without a doubt and my my personal opinion is that the the population felt the like the derby fishing that we're talking yeah. about because that was right around the same amount of time whenever the derby fishing got really bad everybody was going out during snap and they made the, the season really short yeah. where everybody wanted to go at the same exact time yeah and and it created that and the and that was the species evolving or like feeling that and and mm -hmm. trying to to combat what was happening that's what i believe because of a bigger size snapper um, produces far more sperm and eggs than mm -hmm. than a smaller snapper so right i don't know that's uh, that's my opinion and i haven't but i haven't heard a, an, an, another opinion that would make sense you know mm -hmm. what i mean and some people would say that that's crazy but no i, don't I think no, that's possible think very possible yeah but um, of all the uh, reef building and everything that you've uh, you've done, where what what do you think we can do like more of now? Um, what types of reefs maybe, or like what um, what do you think could be? Well, what I I wish they would do is repurpose oil platforms. Uh, it's a shame how much habitat they've taken out with these oil platforms. They're just taking them all down, and. A lot of people don't identify, but it, it all goes back to what I've been told third hand or whatever, that there's some kind of claw, liability clause in these uh, contracts that hold the oil companies uh, responsible for these rigs uh, forever. They can't release them, their liability. That's got, there's got to be a way to change that. There's got to be some lawyers out there smart enough to figure out how to change that where they could sell these rigs or, or, or something. Or let, like, like a, something I really need to call Alex Fogg about um, is how they got the, uh, in Florida, they have fads out there now that the, yeah. that the state has put out mm -hmm. and they're above they're water, you know, mm -hmm. and who's liable for that. And 
And that's, but you're right. That's exactly what has to change if we want to keep more rigs standing for longer. Right. You know? and, and plus, uh, if they repurpose them, I would think the casinos would be a big uh, target for, uh, for some of that. I mean, they got money. Uh, put their billboards can, can out you, there. <laughs> billboards? What? Can you imagine if they put a resort out there? Yeah. Uh, they can helicopter uh, rich people <laughs> out there to gamble and, and have boats to take them fishing and stuff. All in hey, like, a, like a... You talk about a business. <laughs> by the seven-mile rigs out yeah, there. Yeah, nobody out there to cool. bother you. <laughs> yeah, that would be... I've, I've talked about that a lot, too. We yeah. spend a lot of time talking but, about but it. But it all goes that liability clause, John. And there's one place, the Frying Pan Tower off of... Yeah. Carolinas is it I think they, yeah and there's like, uh, like but I, I just but, had on but they, Sonny but they didn't have the money to do it right <laughs> yeah yeah like you're, we're talking like keep something out there specifically for fish or even build something that would in turn well, can you imagine if you go out like, there even if you went out there in your own boat and you could get a room on one of those rigs and stay there and fish off your boat for a couple of days I probably would <laughs> I, I would, would find, I would find clients that would mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> Let's be super cool somewhere where you can very pull, cool. pull your boat up. But nobody approaches that liability clause. I don't know. I don't know how you would do it. You would but think it would. There's got to be the, some people The crazy thing enough. is, is like the oil field already has infrastructure for servicing and stuff. You know right. what I mean? Like it's all there. They already have crew boats that are like and going out there could bring you supplies and and they're and saving things. a ton of money by not having to take them down. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Why they haven't? Uh, you know. The Obama Institute at Idle Iron Policy. I don't know why they can't reverse that. I wish Trump would have reversed that. Yeah, but that one's saying basically if there's any idle iron for yeah. longer than two years, that one it year. has to be removed. Longer yeah. than a year. Oh, yeah. That was two years. If they hadn't used it in a year, they got to get rid of it. Yeah, that's too bad. Yeah. That sucks. And they have gotten rid of a bunch of them. Yeah. And it's it's crazy because like the and see now now we used to go out and you might find a, a rig you know a rig might have one boat on it maybe you got lucky and no boat but now you go out there in the summertime and there's four or five boats on every every rig out there and there's a lot less rigs <laughs> yeah <laughs> and the pressure is just the fish can't take that pressure either yeah that's what I you know when I brought up the idea about putting fads out and people say well then people will fish your fads and I'm like well that's why we need a lot of them. If they had a lot of them, then it wouldn't matter. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you would just run to the next one there where there is nobody. Yeah, and you have to realize those fads are after pelagics, which is those fish are moving anyways. They're coming in and out. They'll be back. Yeah. No and that's one thing that, that, that that's really hard for, like, some people will say that there is there might not be yellowfin tuna in the Gulf of Mexico if we didn't have oil rigs, you know, year-round, year-round yellowfin tuna. Because they the rigs hold the bait and then that allows the tunas to stay. Everywhere else in the world, the tunas like they they migrate, they, they come in, mm-hmm. they feed, and then they leave. Um, but like, if we had a lot more rigs, if we had a lot more structures, would would it make more fish like we think that they did for red snapper? Like, would there be more triple tail? Would there be more wahoos? Would there be more? There's gotta be, yeah. I mean, I think so. But like, I, I don't think there's any. It's an doubt. impossible thing to prove. <laughs> well, you yeah, you really can't prove it more or less. But but uh, I mean, as a parent, somebody like me, yeah, um, the rigs are very interesting for diving because each level has a different uh, field environment, environment of, of vibe, yeah. life, and the top has all the tropicals, the corals, and all that where the sunlight is. Is they're all up near the surface. 
uh, you don't get that with just racks and bottom reefs. Yeah. And so that's very unique. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's it's a shame they're taking all that habitat. Yeah, yeah. I hope maybe maybe we can keep keep some. I don't know. I don't know what more, but. I guess what you're saying is, is you got to fight that law. <laughs> yeah, and, and they don't bring that up. Well, Everybody says they want it, you know, or even if they make reefs out of them. And, and I, we've had some guys at Bessie, and they've done that, right? Yeah, B B S E E. That's uh, .gov. That's that's the uh, government agency that regulates all that. Um, they they uh, they said they want them to be reefs, but it's not up to them. They put out a contract to, to, for the rigs to be taken out. And it's just a matter of who wins it and hmm. whether they thought it was cheaper for them to make a reef out of it. Hmm. So, you know, it's like uh, VK385, you know, they, they made a great reef there. with. Uh, That's a that, really nice one. Yeah, they just cut it and put it right next to it. But 340, um, not 340, maybe 341. There was another rig there between 340 and, uh, and 385, 384, I think There's it was. There's like nothing out there anymore. Yeah, that one they just took out. So I didn't understand that, why they did that. But, but hmm. Yeah, but a lot of them are just being taken out. They ain't yeah. even messing with it. Oh, Billy, I had him on, and he, he made a good point. Like, why can't we just put out cans on top of them, you know, like more yeah. cans? <laughs> the, yeah. The ones that are already there, because that would help. Yeah. I think it would help, you know, for fishermen and stuff. But. Yeah. I'd rather they be just a little 20 feet below the surface myself, but <laughs> that's can't me. see them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's one thing. I mean, that's one thing about oil rigs. Everybody can see them. Yeah. And, I was wondering, too, how many mangrove snapper would be out in the Gulf of Mexico? Well, that's true, too. <laughs> they, they're really good for mangroves. We have some of the biggest mangroves. I because, mean, yeah. And I, it's got to be because of the oil rigs. Cause it's got to be. You go over to the, uh, Florida, they got some nice mangroves over there, but yeah. I think they're bigger over here. I do, too. Yeah. I mean, nowhere else they got some really big ones is, uh, like, like Jacksonville, uh, St. Augustine area. Oh, yeah? I think it has something to do with the uh, – water temperature like the equators right there Mm -hmm. because like you notice like red snapper don't go much further north than south carolina you know what i mean like they Mm -hmm. get some in north carolina and stuff but they don't get like there's like a point where it's too far for them i've never looked at that but it is like in the if you go too far south there's no red snapper either yeah you know there's like a and i always (laughs) thought that's what kind of started these snapper regulations because they they developed them in tampa you know with noah over there did they really yeah that's where they originally found them yeah and and there's not many snapper there so yeah really you know they don't realize the impact they're having to to a state like mississippi how different the environment oh it's hugely different you can't manage the whole gulf with regulation they started to pick up on that it's it's like like goliath grouper you know they're all over florida just decimating them and over here we don't get very many yeah (laughs) so i mean you can't make the same rules for the whole gulf yeah you can't i think they learned that though that's why they started well they're learning but they ain't done anything yeah (laughs) (laughs) it's also really strange when they start doing like like whatever you're fishing in state waters but Mm -hmm. you can't move over like quarter mile and and fish in federal waters like like there's different fish there and there you know yeah (laughs) it just feels weird it's like snook we don't get snook here we don't get snook at all yeah hardly ever but they, but they don't hardly let them catch them down there anyway <laughs> from what i hear the regulations like are really bad i mean they're man i mean they're there though at yeah. least they're there they're there <laughs> you know i mean i guess the regulations have that to stand mm-hmm. on you know but again I, I don't see a problem with anybody catching one species of any fish and taking no. it home you know i mean yeah i think i think we all do have to push for that like yeah. we we keep less um, right 
keep keep less, take care of it better, and and be happy with like like closures. I, I just yeah, I agree. It's hard. Yeah. To, it's hard to get. It's hard to get behind, and like a lot of people would agree with this. It's hard to say, okay, you can go buy it in a store, but you can't go take your own boat, your yeah, own exactly. gas, your own all that stuff, and go mm-hmm. catch it yourself. I think yeah. I think that's where. I guess some of our more traditional Southerners yeah. have a problem with and, and see that these regulations, so they made different regulations for commercial, recreational, and charter. What are they going to do? Start making different ones for spear fishing, pier fishing? Yeah, they will. Off yeah. the bank? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, what, I mean when's like, it going to stop? It's going to make it worse. It's crazy. A lot of the, the fishermen, I've been listening to some other podcasts and stuff, but they, they're for like uh, – like more stock assessments. Mm-hmm. Like some of the guys in Louisiana were saying that we need to get on board with these apps, like the scales and tails, and start recording well, everything that that you're catching. And to me, that's that's the total opposite. Like that's just like. Yeah. Well, you know, something I didn't mention was it's it's not about what you're catching. They think they can determine populations by what you're catching that's not how you do it i mean it, <laughs> that's not really a reaction it, of what's out that's there. right it's not what's out there plus I, the ocean's immense I, you can't fish them to extinction you, you could probably put a pretty good hurt on them yeah but um but still i mean i do believe in, in limits don't get me wrong on that but yeah yeah because you've seen what like taking yeah. too much i mean you well, can exactly. and you don't need you don't need that much especially people like you and i that go out regularly we don't need a lot we don't need a lot i, I only i only want one fish maybe two if i'm you know when i go out and yeah. that, that's all i want to take home yeah that's because it. i want it fresh anyway yeah. yeah i mean and that's i mean that's it like yeah unless i'm going to sell it <laughs> <laughs> then i would change my attitude but that goes back to if you made the same rules for everybody then we could go out and catch a good mess and and supply the market and yeah, or one fish and, right. and they put the regulations under the department of commerce so it tells you right there they want it commercial so why not just make some commercial regs for everybody you just got to bring it down where everybody yeah. can live with it yeah what do you feel like as far as the the efforts of stock assessments do you feel like we should further continue in doing that no nah. I mean, no, I don't. I think but, it, you know, so I think Mother Nature takes care of itself. If you don't close the season on anything, you just limit how much you, you're allowed to take home. Because we don't want waste. Nobody wants waste. So you're basically saying that we are a part of the, the, the exactly. ecosystem. Exactly. We are yeah. part of the ecosystem. We yeah. are meant to take from it. Yeah, I believe that too. Yeah. 100%. But you know, that something that's interesting to me about stock assessments and maybe I think it's a lot different is uh, in a, I think a lot of ways that they're doing good stuff is like up in Alaska. They've kind of figured out cause these salmon will move into these, you know, rivers and streams and they have to mm-hmm. like the way that their seasons work. Right. So I think maybe they have a better grip on as to how many come in, you know what I mean? Like, cause they have to come into these small areas oh, yeah. and they're going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah. And but they got to spawn first. They got to spawn first. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, but that's like, it's just a much different thing. I think it's way different than, yeah. than what is here. You and, know, and, and they're trying the bears to, and stuff up there. So yeah. the wildlife really plays a part in it there. Right. And it's, you know, for them to, you know, keep putting all this money in, in, in personnel, like people like actually go into docks yeah. and, recording how yeah, much right there stuff. it's all about the money <laughs> and like I, I'm, I try and be so nice and I help them but I like a lot of times I feel like they're annoying <laughs> I know it's not it's not even no. that they're annoying it's just that I, I, it's hard for me to believe that they're getting an accurate count like yeah, what they're, they're doing is not 
It's not working. Mm-hmm. I would like to see the efforts getting put into like producing things mm-hmm. and like like actually making something happen. You mm-hmm. know, like right. the aquaculture center and exactly. stuff like that. Like yep. I think that's a huge step in the right direction. If yep. we can start farming triple tail, then people can all have to there, go out and kill them out of the wild. There, you know? There's better places to spend the money that's going to help the that, Yeah, that's what I mean. And it's like, what have what has all that research came what what have they done with all that research mm-hmm. and it, they only have restricted our limits further and we can do that anyways right <laughs> we don't need 10 mangroves a person you know That's what i right. mean like we can already agree that we don't need this much fish right we can agree to that and not have to spend 900 million dollars a year in stock assessments right. to tell us that we don't need to keep this many fish like right. we, we just we just need to know that you know yeah Um, but yeah, uh, what, what is, uh, what else do we, we need to talk about? You feel, is there anything else you, uh, talked about a lot of the stuff we talk about a lot together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I think we, I don't know. I guess we covered, I'm sure after we stop, we'll think of some <laughs> stuff we should have said. <laughs> yeah. This is when you need a question, answer, call in from your, from your audience. <laughs> Yeah, I will share um, maybe one last story. Um, your biggest wahoo you ever caught wasn't that a Venice story? Wasn't that like a hundred four pound wahoo? Um, it was a one hundred one, I think. One hundred one. Yeah, I mean, I don't have I don't have a lot of big fish on my record. I, I never been one for records. I never been one for competition. I just but you were a waterman. <laughs> yeah, I just like being out there and enjoying it all. But yeah. You know, we, I mean, that trip that you're talking about, I think we, we, one of the few times I first started going over to, to Venice, and uh, I think that was with uh, Valdi, uh, Valdemar Larson. Yeah, Norwegian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, we went over there on his boat, I think, and we caught uh, three, two or three tuna and that, that wahoo. 104 pounds, huh? Yeah, 101, I think, was a 101? Yeah, and I think the tunas were like 110 and 115 or something. Man, that's crazy. You remember the year on those? No. No, I don't know. I got a picture on the website somewhere. but It was like late 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, it was quite a while back. That's pretty cool to go down there in Venice yeah, and do that. Yeah, but, I mean, they were they seemed thicker back then. I mean. Uh, from what the guys talk about? Yeah. Um, like, I remember Eddie Berger, he said that, you know, they would catch, like, he said, 150 to 250 wahoo a season like whenever it was good and we we didn't even know we were doing and we were pulling uh you know uh, man baits you know what do we call them the rapalas and rapalas and stuff yeah that's what we were doing we we didn't have live bait stuff things changed after that and you had to start doing live bait and really for wahoos still but i mean yeah well not as much for wahoo but we were tuna fishing and yeah 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 and uh yeah now I don't know. People just don't seem to catch them that way. I'm, I'm not. That's what all the. That's what all of them say too. That it yeah. was crazy. It didn't matter. You just, you just go out there by the rigs mm-hmm. and pull one way and pull and, the next way. And, and uh, yeah, I got trickier after that. I remember I went back to Venice one time with uh, uh, Mark Walker, and we went out there to this rig, and and Peace Marvel was out there in his boat, and they were double hooked up and triple hooked up, and. Uh, we weren't getting a bite or anything. <laughs> we called him Ray. What are we doing wrong? He told us how to hook the live bait a little different and told us what to do. We started hooking up. Really? 
Dang, so shout really out cool. to Peace Marvel. Thanks for that. <laughs> he probably he don't even know who I am. I mean, he didn't know who I was in. <laughs> That's funny though. I remember like I don't know my whole life growing up. We we uh I'll probably attach the video to the to this podcast, but my whole life growing up. I used to hear that story about, you know, it was always like Kobe are the best eating. And then it was like, yeah, but if you ever get a Wahoo, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's the best, that's the best stuff. And we never caught a Wahoo, like all growing up. We never, we never did, but it was like a story you always talked about was catching that Wahoo. And then that, mm-hmm. that one day, you remember the day whenever we caught that, that Wahoo it was like, I don't know. We were way out, way too many people on that little boat, and (laughs) 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 there was like a tuna that jumped clear across the the front of the boat, or I don't know. He's kind of off in the distance, but he jumped, and we just put out a bait, and we hooked a wahoo, and he was like seventy pounds. Oh yeah, I I love that. That's one of my favorite videos. Yeah, you and your friends. One of my favorite videos. Yeah, I'll go back and let's say, was it twenty twelve or? Think when it no, was. it was like a junior, sophomore in high school, maybe somewhere in there. I I can find it on the website though. Oh, so yeah. I'm sure it's the thumbnail. But I, kept but I just like if you if you guys watch the video, like it's, it's almost a little it's almost a little embarrassing how excited. But like I don't know, that's just like you know moments like that make make you into a fisherman, like make you really mm-hmm. crave moments like that even more. Yeah. you know, like yeah, we thought the day was done and we're running in. And yeah, we're, we're like, like, all right, we're skunk, we ain't got no tuna, you know. <laughs> yeah, and then we see something, we're like, well, let's just put something out. And it yeah. wasn't very long either. No, <laughs> Boom, little, little freaking like six yeah. inch. Yeah, a little short lure, and it was almost broke off. I think it broke in the Alex, boat. I think Alex still has the lure. Does he? <laughs> yeah. But uh, that was a, a definitely. And, you know, I thought it was so funny is uh, like that was like a a big moment in fishing for me. I felt like growing up, and Billy almost told the exact same story. <laughs> like as him, he went like had like a new rod and stuff, and went <laughs> off of like Florida and. uh with his dad and caught caught a wahoo. But awesome. It was pretty cool to hear that. Like I don't know, wahoos definitely hold a spot for me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, anyways, I really appreciate you uh, doing this podcast with me, pops. It was a uh, sure. dang good one, and hopefully we'll do it again someday. Um, I know it was well overdue, but I hope <laughs> you enjoyed it as well. Well, I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing, and you people out there need to go. Book a trip with my son Paul because uh, he he is a fish magnet. I'll I'll tell one more story because we were coming back from offshore. I remember it was you, me, and I think Mom. I think and and uh, he wanted to go buy this can. He said, "I know there's a cobia there. I just know there is." And I said, "It's a little out of the way, Paul, and it's going to be sun's going to be down by the time we get there." And now, oh, come on, I know he's there. I know he's there, and we. So we go over there. The sun had just went below the horizon. It was kind of dark. I said, you're not going to be able to see anything. He jumps in the water, and he comes out with a cobia. <laughs> I remember that, yeah. And there was one other time about a cobia, too. That was VK385 before they cut it off. It was a rig. And we, we were headed south there. But I said, well, we want to try here. And you had rigged up a, a chum basket or something. And yeah, it was like I that was my thing. I would jump in with like a chum bag and a uh-huh. gun. A chum bag and a gun. And, and he was free diving. And it was so funny because all these boats were around VK three eighty five. There must have been twelve boats around it. And they're all sit standing there like 
they don't you know like nothing's happening they're like dead and we pull up and you go in the water and within five or ten minutes you're you're thrashing with this cobia and we put him in the boat and we head on south and those people are just staring at us like what the hell just happened put him in the boat and rolled yeah that's one of my favorite stories that was definitely like a uh it's like a feeling that i get it happens all the time that i mean whatever i'm guiding especially like it doesn't always happen, though. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like but when it's it like, happens, it's Yeah, it's when it happens, it's like, you, I mean, like, I don't get that feeling all the time. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, I don't get that feeling like I really know where they're at. But whenever you do, it's a good feeling. Like, I feel I feel like I say it a lot with guides as you go through, like, uh, like you go through stretches or spells or, like, uh, like you go, you're at, you're you go on a stretch, and you're like, it's like you can't do anything wrong. Everywhere you go, it's just working. You know where everything's at. You know where the bait's at. You know where the fish are, and it's working. And then sometimes you go through a stretch, and you never really find your groove. Yeah. <laughs> like you're fishing for five or ten days or whatever, and you're just like, man, is it gonna get better? <laughs> <laughs> I hope it does. Yeah. <laughs> it's like life; it goes up and down. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it, Pops. Sure thing. And uh, everybody, y'all have a good one. Tight line. Stay safe.